You guys can have a seat. Well, good morning once again. Good to be with you. If you're just now joining us online, uh, I'm Cal. I'm the pastor here. And uh, just really glad to have you watching online or here with us. Um, If uh, you have children at this time, obviously not if you're online, uh, but if you have children here in the room and they would like to go to children's worship, they can exit right out those doors. We've got some people right out there who would love to take them. Excuse me, take them to our children's room, and uh, they'll have a, a lesson uh, at their own age level where they will learn about God's word for them, and uh, really excited to be able to offer that. Also, if you're a guest with us, it's your first time, maybe it's your first time in a long time, we've got some visitor cards out there on the, on the table. It's right next to our offering box, which by the way, I don't know if anybody's called attention to that, but uh, Joel's, who made the pulpit made an awesome uh, box for our offerings and stuff out there as well. So, But if you're a guest, if you just fill out one of those cards for us, just name information in any way we can be praying for you, um, you can just drop that in that offering box. That's just kind of like, uh, you know, we don't expect you to give us anything today. That's just your, your kind of your gift is to give us some information. Uh, we just basically, nothing creepy, we just want to send you a letter thanking you for coming. <laughs> and, and honestly, I'll just be real f- fresh with you. It's usually an email. Uh, it's usually an email. Uh, anyway, uh, if you want to do that, if you are a guest with us and you are online, though, and I'm, I'm taking some time to do this because I haven't done this in a while. If you're online and you're a guest with us, maybe, because uh, I know there's some people who I don't know who watch, uh, send us a message with your information in a way we can be praying for you because we'd like to be able to reach out and, and contact you. Um, Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7, or whatever device you look up scripture on. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 11. Begin in verse 11. Now, when I say the word perfect, what comes to mind? What's the definition of that word? When you think about using the word perfect in a sentence... What are the thoughts that come to mind? When you hear me say that out loud, when you hear me say the word perfect, what are the thoughts that come into your mind? Don't yell them out, or that's going to get awkward, but just what comes to mind? You know, I remember when I was in seminary, uh, we would have to write all sorts of papers, okay? You probably, you probably knew that. We had to write all sorts of papers. Um, and there were some that I even got an A on, all right? Uh, now, getting an A-plus is pretty good, right? I can remember uh, I had to write a paper on the book of Revelation, okay, which is uh, hard to understand for even very, very uh, bright Christian scholars, right? Uh, I had to write a paper on the book of Revelation. I thought of this because Frank and I were talking about it this morning, and uh, uh, we were talking about end times and stuff. I had to write a paper in seminary on, on Revelation. Now, I got an A on that paper, and I, who. I was, number one, shocked, uh, because that's not a topic that I thought I would, I would score well on, okay? But I got an A on it, and an A is pretty good, but from a teacher's perspective, okay, my wife's a teacher, it, it, from a teacher's perspective, if you give someone an A+, plus, are you saying that the paper is perfect? No. It, it meets the rubric, right? It meets the scoring rubric or whatever, but it's not a perfect paper, because it's flawed because it was written by a person, by a human. The, the fall of man and the introduction of sin into the world has stained everything. And because of this, there's nothing here that is, that is perfect. Now, I asked you about the word perfect because it's key to our understanding 
of today's passage in Hebrews. Specifically, specifically, we need to understand the word in the way that the writer of the book of Hebrews uses it. There's many words that we use today in really sloppy ways. For example, the word love, right? I love that book, or I love Cheetos. We've likewise used perfect in imperfect ways. Did you see what I did there? Maybe you saw the newest Top Gun movie and someone asks you, hey, how was the movie, man? We might give the response, it was great. It's a, it's a perfect movie. We toss that word around. Do we mean when we say that that there was nothing at all wrong with it? You usually know. That's what we need to gain, excuse me, that's where we need to gain understanding about how the author of Hebrews uses the word perfect when he's describing Jesus. It's not that Jesus is just better than previous high priests. We've been talking about uh, Jesus as being better. We said that's the overarching theme in Hebrews is Jesus is superior or Jesus is better. That's what I titled the whole series, Jesus is Better. Because I want to stay focused on that. And we talked about how last week, and we, we went into great detail about Jesus as compared to Melchizedek and the lion in order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to continue that this week as well. But it's not just that Jesus was simply better than previous high priest. It's not just a category of a superlative Okay, it's not like something, a superlative like you might see in a yearbook. I don't even know if they still do that. But for example, like in the old yearbooks, you had like best hair or most likely to succeed, right? And everybody voted on them and it was like that person was the superlative, the best in that category. No, when the author writes about the perfection of Jesus, he's talking about an intrinsic attribute, true perfection, Jesus can't help but be perfect. It's who he is. It's also a defining characteristic of his priestly ministry. And the reason his ministry is perfect is because Jesus Christ is objectively perfect. Not like a perfect grade from a fallen human professor, but truly and objectively perfect. He is the only one who can claim being both fully divine and fully human because he's the perfect God, man. Now, I need to set up some context for how our passage fits in the, in, in, in the context of where we are and where we've been and where we're going. And if you missed last week, it would, uh, you can listen to this message and get everything out of it you need to get out. I believe the Lord can do that uh, in his word, but it will help you uh, if you missed last week's to go back and listen to last week's as well to connect, uh, to connect the dots. And you can do that on our website. This is the book of Hebrews. This is the book of Hebrews, a group of Hebrew Christians who are being pressed hard by the culture around them, and they stand out because they believe and worship differently than the preponderance of the culture around them. They're facing pressure to give in to the culture and the religious leaders around them and return to their old Jewish ways of worshiping, and the stakes are quite high. 
And so a writer pens a divinely inspired letter to encourage them to stand firm in their faith. In fact, we think Hebrews may have potentially, uh, because of its structure and everything, before it may have actually been a sermon originally. But he, he pens this divinely inspired letter to encourage them to stand firm in their faith. And he tells them to persevere and to encourage this. He spends a great deal of time on how Jesus is better than anything or anyone else even those in their religious tradition, because Jesus was, in fact, the point of their religious tradition. The author had been making the point that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and he explains, or continues to explain, the comparison of Jesus and Melchizedek in verses 11 through 28, which is where we're going to be this morning. So that's just to set up kind of where we've been and kind of where we're going, that he's going to continue to explain this comparison of Jesus and Melchizedek. Let's begin reading in Hebrews 7, verse 11, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 28. It's a long passage. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us understand it and apply it to our lives. Lord God, as we come, I just bring you uh, 
my humble efforts. Uh, I pray that you would help me be clear. I pray you would help us understand the meaning of your word. I pray that you would help us to see how it applies to our lives. And I pray you would use it to change our hearts and make us more like you, Jesus. Father, may I decrease and you increase. This is, is not about me. It is about you. Don't let me get in the way, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. You know, I, I read that the reason that this passage doesn't seem as shocking to us as it should is because we here in 2022 America are so far removed from its original context, the cultural context that it was written into. Therefore, we need to take a look at that context. When, when we understand this context, you'll hopefully see the legal problem that requires a better priest than the Levitical priests. Now, I tried to do a better job this week giving you an outline that you could actually follow. And the first point that we come to is the legal problem. The legal problem that's presented, or the problem of the law. The problem of the law, and in particular, the priests. And we find this in verses 11 through 14. See, the Levitical priesthood was the backbone of Jewish society, and it was one of the major components of God's covenant with Israel. And, and the shock of this passage for the original audience is that the author is proclaiming, listen to this, the author is proclaiming that Jesus Christ brings an end to the Levitical priesthood. This thing that had marked their culture in so many ways and signified their connection to God and favor with him has been proclaimed as ended because, we see this here in our passage, because something better, and not just better, but something perfect had come along. For us today, we see that and we think, well, yeah, but for the Jewish people back then, this would have been rather scandalous. It would have been rather scandalous. Al Mohler writes this about, about this passage. The priesthood defined the Jewish people. God established it through the male heirs of the tribe of Levi. These descendants of Jacob had certain priestly duties to perform. Due to the weighty responsibility entrusted to the Levites, other tribes actually took up contributions to feed and care for them. The particularity and preservation of the line of Levi was paramount to Israelite society. So the tribe of Levi being uplifted and preserved and continuing was like hugely important. This was paramount in Jewish society. Back to Muller. As the mediators between Israel and God, the Levitical priests represented the people of Israel before Yahweh. They were the people's proxy. They also represented God back to the people through their fulfillment of their priestly duties. And the writer of Hebrews declares that a greater priesthood exists than the one covenanted through the Levitical tribe. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is truly superior because Levi's priesthood did not achieve perfection. As right and righteous as Levi's priesthood was, it was still imperfect. Thus, the Levitical priesthood could not accomplish the salvation of God's people. It wasn't good enough. Yeah, but pastor, it was instituted by God. Like in the, in the, the Mosaic law, the priesthood was set up. Uh-huh. And it was set up specifically in this way to point 
to something better coming along, something perfect to Jesus. So what are the issues with the Levitical priesthood what are, that, are, that are pulled out here in Scripture? What are the Levitical problems, we could say? If you're taking notes, that's your next point there. What are the Levitical problems? Well, they weren't truly capable of being the true mediator between God and man for all eternity. They were, uh, if they were sufficient, then they would have been, there would have been no need for Israel to wait around for a great high priest to come. If the priesthood could get to perfection, then there would not have been a need for another greater priest to come. If that was the case, then the whole mention of Melchizedek in Genesis and Psalms would have been devoid of meaning. There would not have been a need for a Messiah to come and serve as a mediator between God and his followers if the Levitical priests were good enough, if they could attain perfection on their own. Here are some of the problems that are presented in the passage to which Jesus and his priestly ministry was a direct solution. Number one, priests died. Priests died. We see that in verse 23. And we know this, right? They were merely humans and they died. There were many of the Levitical priests over the years because death prevented them from continuing to serve. They grew old and they died They were not able to serve as an eternal mediator because they were finite in and of themselves. But Jesus, 100% God and 100% man, died in the place of sinners on the cross and rose again and will never die again. He exists eternally and can serve, does serve as our high priest and our go-between with the Father for eternity because he will not be dying again. This is... Great news, but again, remember, this is being written to these Hebrew Christians, and it's being pointed out, hey, the Levites were, they were insufficient because you kept having to replace, there was always a job opening eventually, right? They always had to put a new one in the slot. And number two, not only did the priests die, but number two, Levite priests had sin of their own. We see that in verse 27. They were fallen humans. They, they fit into the category of all having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The insufficiency of the priest comes to the forefront when we realize that they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before they could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. They represented the people before God, and they were to represent God before the people, but they could only do so as an imperfect representation There needed to be a mediator who could offer a once and for all sacrifice who had no sin of his own, making himself the once and for all sacrifice. And only this type of person could stand between God and man as perfect high priest and mediator. And when we get to verse 19, it tells us that the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. But the writer of Hebrews says, There was a better hope introduced, a better hope. And this better hope was the solution to the problems of the Levitical priesthood. So when we look at the issues that we had with the priests dying and them having sin of their own, having to offer a sacrifice for themselves before they could go offer sacrifices to the people and being an imperfect representation of God before the people, a better hope is introduced in verse 19. And that's the solution. 
the solution to the Levitical problems, the solution to the legal problem, is for a better hope to be introduced. And that better hope is Jesus Christ. It's the message of the gospel. He, Jesus Christ, is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And the solution to all of the issues with the Levitical priesthood. It is Jesus who is referred to in verse 13 as the one of whom these things are spoken. It's about Jesus. This better hope introduced had a few different components. The first one was a different kind of priest from a different line, from a different order. This was a royal line. If you're taking notes, the slide's going to go up, and it's a mess because I didn't delete the other parts of the notes there. You could just write down a royal line (laughs) if you want. The other slashes were for me to remember. Hey, it's proclamation. It's not a classroom. We needed a different kind of priest from a different line, a different order, a royal line. Last week I talked about the differences between, uh, in Israel between priest and king, and we're going to get into that in just a minute again. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was not from the tribe of Levi and did not enter, inherit this role genetically. No, Jesus was actually born into the tribe of Judah. No one from Judah had ever served as the priest. There were distinctions between the tribes and their roles in Jewish society. The the priest was not to be a king, and the king could not serve as a priest. And Levi was the tribe of priests, but Judah, Judah was known primarily as the tribe of King David that had given Israel its kings. So here we have a foretold Messiah who will reestablish David's throne. He's a priest, He's a priest, but he's also from the kingly line and tribe. And Jesus' ministry has three functions or aspects. When we look at Jesus' ministry to us, his ministry on the behalf of his people, there's really three aspects. And you've probably heard this before. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Years ago, when I was in uh, college, I think, early on, there was a song by uh, Small Town Poets, I think was the name of the Christian band, called Prophet, Priest, and King. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube out there. And that's where I first heard about these three aspects or functions in Jesus's ministry of being prophet, priest, and king. This kind of perfection and perfect ministry is not found in the Old Covenant, There is not a category for it in the Old Covenant. Only Jesus can operate in these ways as prophet, priest, and king in perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, there are four truths that I want to cover about Jesus and this high priestly ministry of his that we can see reflections of here in this scripture. And these show why all of this is very, very good news for us. The first one is, A perfect plan and a perfect savior. Perfect plan, perfect savior. The Lord's plan required a perfect savior. 
someone who had no sin, someone who was flawless. You might write down that word flawless. There were no oversights or shortcomings. Jesus is not a backup plan. He is the plan from the very beginning. If you go back into the book of Genesis, if you go back into the book of Genesis and uh, Adam and Eve sinned and they ate of the fruit of the tree that God said, you can eat any of, from any of these trees, but don't eat from that one. And they ate from it. And then he get, God comes and remember, and they hide and he finds them and calls out and they were scared because they were naked and God asked them, well, who told you you were naked, right? And it's obviously just summarized, okay? And then he gives the curses, right? The man's going to work, the woman's going to have pain in childbirth and et cetera, et cetera. And the serpent, remember what he said in Genesis 3.15? I'm going to flip over there real quick. I don't have it on the screen for you. Genesis 3.15 says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is, is what they call proto-evangelium and it means first gospel. Okay, now you know a big word. You can impress people at parties. Okay, proto-evangelium. It means first gospel. Even from the very beginning, Jesus was the plan. Jesus was not a backup plan. It wasn't that God, it wasn't that God put all these priests and, and the, the law and all this stuff here, and well, gosh, that didn't work, so I'm going to send plan number two, plan B. No, that's not it. It was Jesus was always plan A. And it was always to point to the need for a perfect Savior. It was a perfect plan. It was flawless. And secondly, it required not just flawless, but a perfect savior with a perfect nature. Not only was everything Jesus did perfect, but he is perfect in his very nature. I, I poked at this bear earlier in the message. It would be against the nature of Christ to not act perfectly. It is who he is that is hard for us to grasp because we are so imperfect. But it's in his very nature. In his, it's a very character trait, an attribute of him. So it required a perfect plan and a perfect savior. Number two, Jesus' high priesthood comes with permanence. It's permanent. It's permanent. You might write down the word final. There is nothing more to be said on the matter. It is done. Jesus' priesthood is the final one. It's ultimate. God has spoken on it. That's why when Jesus was on the cross about to give his life, to give up his spirit, to pay the price for our sin in our place, he said, it is finished. It's done. It's finished. Jesus' priesthood is the final one. It's permanent. You might write down the word eternal in relation to his permanent priesthood. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. His mediation for us, his intercession for us, will, there will never be a day, 
There will never be a day when those who have been purchased out of sin by the blood of Christ on the cross will ever need anyone else to mediate for them with the Father. It's why. Guys, this is why you can go straight to God because of Jesus. Okay? It's why you don't have to come up here to the building once a week and sit in a little booth with the curtain and tell me all the bad stuff you've done. Because you can confess it straight to God. Now, yes, in Scripture, there is a lot to be said about confessing our sins one to another. Okay, I understand this. But you don't need me as a go-between. I'm not a priest in that way. Okay? I love it when people who don't understand um, Protestantism, don't understand evangelicalism, or just really what I do, want to say, so you're like a priest, but you're married? I'm like, no, no, I'm not a priest. I am not a priest. I'm not a priest. The best one was I was doing a baptism once, and uh, the gal's family, had, had, she had grown up Catholic, and they asked me if uh, the baptistry that I was baptizing her in was full of holy water. I was like, no, it's, it's just tap water. That'd be a lot of holy water. Anyway, sorry. There were some floaties in it, probably. A lot of bugs. Anyway, Jesus, Jesus is always there and always claims over his people that they are his. We don't need anyone else as a go-between. We have the ultimate, the perfect mediator. You might also, in relation to that word permanent, you might want to write down continuous. This is linked closely with eternality. Jesus is always there, and so we can approach the throne of grace at any time. There's never a time. There is never a time when we who have trusted in Christ cannot cry out in prayer to the creator of the universe. It makes me ashamed of the lack of prayer in my own life sometimes. Because I preach, and it's true what we read in Scripture. We can cry out to God in prayer anytime. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we can cry out to God. There's never a time, if you, love, if you have trusted Jesus, if you have repented of your sin and, and trusted in Jesus, there's never a time where you can't. And if you are convicted that you don't know Jesus and you want to, to repent of your sin and believe in the gospel, there's never a time, there's never a time because of Jesus' perfect intercession where you can't. And it convicts me because I always have someone there. I can always go straight to God. It convicts me of prayerlessness in my life. Maybe you as well. The third aspect of this priestly ministry of Jesus is that it comes with a perfect guarantee. It comes with a perfect guarantee. I was looking this week um, when I was in college. A lot of my stories come from college, don't they? I was really dumb in college, so lots of material there. Um, I bought a backpack when I was in college, one of these East Packs. Do you remember East Packs? And uh, it had an Iowa State logo because you guys know I'm a huge Cyclone fan. And uh, it was great. And I wore that thing everywhere. I, it was, I was using it when we started dating, and I still have that thing at home. A few weeks ago, I was going through some stuff, and I found the sealed envelope where I had put the warranty of that bag, like the tags that I took off like 25 years ago. Okay? I didn't open it yet. 
but I went on their website because I know there's some issues with the bag, and I wanted to see if they were still covered because it used to be lifetime, whatever's wrong, we'll fix it, right? Lo and behold, it was not a perfect guarantee. There are some things, repairs that might have to be made, and they give you a price list. Huh. Now, I haven't contacted them yet. I'm using this as an illustration, so I don't know if I'm right or wrong, because if I'm wrong, then this makes it a terrible illustration, so just go with me. But is it a perfect guarantee? No, it's not. There are ways around it, like ways to, for them as a company to get out of it. But God guarantees all of this with an oath. Verse 20 is a promise that we can cling to. Because God sealed it with an oath, we can trust that it will always be true. Jesus will be a priest forever. God will not change his mind. He accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish, and he sealed it with an oath. And God, as we read in a previous passage, cannot lie. And so when God says something, take it to the bank. It will happen. It is guaranteed. It is sealed. I just became a pulpit pounder. And number four, the fourth aspect, pulpit pounder, Bible beater, whatever. <laughs> the last aspect of the priestly ministry of Jesus that I want to talk about is a priestly sacrifice, or excuse me, perfect sacrifice, perfect sacrifice. There's two aspects of this I want you to remember. Number one, once and for all. You might write that down, once and for all, perfect sacrifice. Never again, never again, never again. I'm saying it three times in the Bible. They say things three times in, in repetition. That's for emphasis of importance. I'm doing it that way now. Never again, there's number four. Never again will a sacrifice for sin have to be offered. Never again will a sacrifice for sin have to be offered. Because Jesus was perfect, ultimate, once and for all. And we struggle with that, guys. We do. Even if we, th we say, amen, that's right, pastor. I'm going to take that to the bank. But then we struggle throughout the week thinking that maybe there's something more we need to do so that God will accept us a little bit more. Yeah, but pastor, it says this. And it says, no, don't confuse the commands for those who follow Jesus with what it takes to become a follower of Jesus. So yes, absolutely, once you're surrendered, you've believed in that once and for all sacrifice, you've repented of your sin, you've trusted Jesus Christ, given your life to him, those words we use for it, right? Yes, there are things in scripture that we, as followers of Christ, are supposed to live out, that we are supposed to do. Yes, absolutely. And if you're unwilling to do those, we need to talk about where your heart's at, and if you're really surrendered to Christ, if you're not willing to do the things that Christ says his kids will do. But never again will there have to be another sacrifice offered. There's nothing you could do to earn salvation. Therefore, there must be nothing that we could do to lose it either. 
He was a once and for all sacrifice. And number two, this perfect sacrifice was all sufficient. All sufficient. Jesus is enough. His death was sufficient to atone for all of your sin. Your very sin nature was atoned for by Jesus dying in your place. You should have hung on the cross. I should have hung on the cross. You should face eternal damnation for your sin against a holy and perfect God. And I should face damnation in hell for my sin against a holy and perfect God. But Jesus took that sin on the cross for those who place their trust in him alone for salvation. And friends, this is incredible news. Because we deserve hell, but because of Jesus we get heaven. And we get relationship with the Father. We get reconciliation with God. Don't miss out on this. As depraved and totally sinful and deserving of hell as I am and as you are, remember the words of Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan, okay? Um, and like, there's lots that can be said about the Puritans. I, I love some of their writings, okay? And Richard Sibbs says this, We have this for a foundation truth that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. As deep as your depravity goes, and guys, I'm the worst sinner I know. And you might say, no, pastor, I am. And the reason you would say that is because you know what goes on between these. Right? And remember, though our sin is deep, Though our sin would condemn us, his mercy is more. His love is greater than our sin. His love is greater still. So the better hope is in verse 19. The better hope is Jesus. It's the gospel. And the better hope is the way by which we draw near. To God. It's not just, hey, we have this hope, but the hope is also the way by which we draw near to God. It's the way by which we are sanctified, by which we grow in Christ and become more and more like Him. It's the way by which we are sustained in our faith, and it's by the way by which we find the strength to persevere in our faith and not fall back into our old religious ways. I'm going to, at this point, invite our musicians to come back up if they would. And I want to ask two questions and explore them as, they, as they're coming and getting ready for us to sing a final song. And that, those questions are this. Number one, I thought about this passage as I was getting it ready and uh, writing up my manuscript and going through all the things. And last night I sat down with it. And I wanted to answer these two questions. The two questions are, what are the implications in this for Christians? And the second question I wanted to answer was, what are the implications for non-Christians? Okay? That should describe everybody who can hear my voice. One of those. So, what are the implications for Christians? If you're here today and you've trusted Christ for salvation, 
you believe the gospel, you've repented of your sin, then the implications of this are that you can trust that Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father and interceding for you. He has made a way for you to be made right with God, and it is because of his perfect ministry that you can have the relationship with God that you crave and enjoy. Since we have a perfect high priest who has already accomplished everything for salvation, then don't try to do some kind of work to earn right standing with God. Know that Jesus has given his righteousness to all who trust in him. He took our sin on the cross and exchanged it for his righteousness. That means that, Christian, you have Jesus' right standing before God credited to your account. You're free to live an obedient life to the things that he commands of his followers. You don't have to worry about messing it up because you have a mediator. You have a glorious and perfect high priest who looks at you and claims, Mine. You can freely draw near to God because the gospel is the very way, the very hope by which we can draw near to him. So are you depressed this morning? Draw near. He has made a way. Are you anxious? Draw near. He's made a way for you. Cling to the guarantee. Are you tempted to fall back into some form of religious, legalistic behavior? I get tempted with that. As these Hebrews were being pressured to do. Draw near to God in the gospel, for it is the very reason for the hope we have. He is able to sustain you, to carry you through, to help you persevere, cling to Jesus. So what are the implications for non-Christians? Well, there may be a second group of people here. Maybe you're here, you're watching online. You've never believed the gospel or repented of your sin. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation from your sin. Maybe you're still trying to live your life by your own rules and in your own way. This passage is very good news for you. It points out that no earthly priest could even measure up. They were imperfect and even had to offer sacrifices for their sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that was true of the Levitical priests and that's true of me and you. The good news is that God is holy, and he must punish and judge sin, but because he's also love, he sent Jesus Christ to be that perfect sacrifice, that once and for all sacrifice. So now, we never need another purely human priest because we have the perfect God-man as our eternal high priest, and he made a way for us to be reconciled with God by his death on the cross, and he proved he proved that this was accepted as sufficient by rising from the dead three days after he had died. And the amazing thing is you can get in on this. You can get on on this today. So will you repent of your sin and believe the good news for salvation? Will you trust Jesus this morning? I'm going to ask if you would all stand up with me. I'm not going to do any, you know, big tent revival, head bowed, eyes closed, anything like that. But if, if your heart has been pricked by the gospel this morning and you want to talk more about that, I'll be around afterwards. You can come talk to me or we can set up a time later in the week if you want, uh, whatever works out for you. Um, but 
we come to these passages and they're so deep in cultural stuff and theology and, and some thick, thick things that are so important. And I want us to get out of it why it's really, really good news for us. Let's pray and then we'll sing one final song. And Jesus, as we come to this time, just pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that if there are dark uh, closets and chasms in our hearts where we're holding up some kind of habitual sin, that you would break them right open and shine the light of the gospel there. Pray that you would help us to, uh, to see clearly you, Jesus. God, if there are those here who don't know you, I pray today would be their day of salvation, that they would surrender to you. Lord, if there are those here who they say, yeah, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, but my life is kind of honestly a wreck right now. I pray they would cling to you. That they would seek you, that they would repent of any sin that they've let sneak into their life. And that they would cling to the good news of the gospel, that you are there that you intercede for us, that you are our go-between with the Father, our perfect high priest, that there's nowhere we can go to hide from you, and there's nowhere where you, and there's never a time where you will run away from us. Help us trust in you, to trust in your love, and to be the people who you have called us to be. And it's in your name, Jesus, your holy, your perfect, your flawless, eternal name, I pray. Let's sing together one final time.